This morning, uh, at the start of this new year, we are kicking off a brand new teaching series called Enduring Kingdom. It's a study in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, the book of 2 Samuel really uh, t- takes a look at the reign of David as king over Israel. Uh, that's kind of the, really, in the Old Testament, the First and 2 Samuel are really just one book. But as they're divided in our English Bible, the second book, 2 Samuel, really has to do with when David is actually king in his reign. From the really good stuff he does to some of the really bad things he does, it shows us a, a brief picture of how God intends the, the, his kingdom to look like. But it also shows us the failures of human kings and why we ultimately need to look to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise. Uh, 2 Samuel hits its climactic moment in chapter 7, where God says to David, your offspring will sit on the throne of my kingdom forever. And so this is why we've got uh, enduring kingdom. Of course, this ultimately leads to Jesus being born in Bethlehem like David and coming from the family of David to be the ultimate fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, To put into context, as we're about to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 1, let me kind of give you a quick, very, very quick overview of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel is born miraculously to a woman named Hannah who could not have children. Hannah returns Samuel to God, understanding he's been a gift to her from God. And Samuel becomes a uh, a great prophet and priest for God. God speaks through Samuel to lead his people. His people ultimately want to be a lot like the other nations around them, and so they ask God for a king. And they look for a king kind of in human fashion, a big uh, kind of uh, hulking man who, who looks like he can lead them and who's been victorious in battle. And so ultimately, God allows Saul to be named king. And it does not take long before we see the error of human ways in wanting a king, because what they're actually doing is rejecting God's rule over them. And Saul very quickly begins to pursue his own glory, and ultimately, by chapter 15, God is rejecting Saul as king. Samuel says to him pretty emphatically, God would have established your family's rule over this kingdom forever had you not turned your back on him. And so then David is anointed king. David has these amazing victories over Goliath and all kinds of military victories. He's postured himself as a servant to Saul, but Saul is incredibly jealous of David. And he knows that eventually David is going to become king. And so Saul actually begins to persecute and make life miserable for David, so much so that David goes on the run. And it says of him, there's times he has no place to lay his head. This is the anointed king of Israel, roaming around, living in caves, pretending to be uh, paranoid so he can be welcomed in by, by neighboring nations. And this ultimately leads to the, to the end of 1 Samuel, where Saul is in battle and he is defeated in battle by the Philistines, and he is killed in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn there. Uh, If you'd like one and don't have one, there's several on the back table. Or feel free to just listen as I read. 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites, 
and stayed in Ziklag for two days. Uh, David was not involved in the military campaign that Saul was in. He was battling a group of Amalekites who had plundered the town of Ziklag and had taken all kinds of of loot from there, as well as women and children. And so David went uh, and under God's power, defeated the Amalekites, brought uh, everyone home safely. So David's down there. Uh, On the third day, uh, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. And he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. The man fled from battle. Uh, The men fled from battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. If you remember, Jonathan is uh, the son of Saul. He's the rightful heir to the kingdom uh, upon Saul's death. But Jonathan is also uh, BFFs, for lack of a better word, with David. And has recognized David's reign and God's blessing on David. So he has relinquished his right to the crown so that David might have it. David and Jonathan have uh, an incredible relationship. So both Saul and Jonathan are now dead in this battle. Verse 5, And David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the Amalekite says, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? And he asked me, Who are you? And I said, I'm an Amalekite. And then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? And he said, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. And David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. And David goes on from there to write a beautiful poem of grief that he has recorded in the book of Jashar so that the nation of Israel would be able to revisit this moment of national grief. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's confusion about what's going on. And, and all of a sudden, there's battles going on up here, over there. And all of a sudden, this Amalekite shows up and says to David, Oh, by the way, the Israelites have lost. The king is dead and your best friend is dead too. And so they're trying, he, David is trying to figure this out, and he's processing it, and he says, well, explain to me, tell me what happened. Uh, and the Amalekite says, well, I, I came across this guy, and it, it turned out to be the king. And he was leaning on his spear, and he said, hey, who are you? And I said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said, well, come on over here and kill me. Now, did this story make any sense to you? This is the most bizarre story we've ever heard. And in fact, 
if you would traipse back one chapter into 1 Samuel, you would find out that nothing this man has said is true. It's a complete fabrication. It's an utter lie. What had happened in 1 Samuel chapter 31, as the storyteller tells us, is that Saul was wounded in battle. And he knew he was going to die. And he did not want the enemy to capture his body so that he would be taken and tortured. And so he turned to his armor bearer and said, kill me because surely I'm going to die. And the armor bearer said, no way. I'm not going to kill you. And so Saul took his own sword and ended his own life. And the armor bearer who was next to him took his sword and ended his life. And probably what happened was somehow an Amalekite showing up on this field finds Saul dead and seeks to capitalize on a winning situation for him. What we have here is a crazy story. And what the, what the narrator really wants us to begin to do is to begin to compare this Amalekite to David. Who are they and how are they responding to these situations? And I would suggest to you, uh, maybe the best way we can do this is to think of it in three words. Three words that start with the letter G. The first is greed. The second is grief. And the third is glory. Greed, grief, and glory. See, the Malachite tells this complete fabrication We know that this is a lie because we've read in 1 Samuel chapter 31 something that David had not yet understood because he was not privy to that information yet, that Saul had ended his own life. And really, I think David is beginning to understand as this story is unfolding that there are lots of holes in this story. For instance, how would Saul be all by himself on a battlefield? Have you ever watched movies with ancient a kingdom's battling themselves in the king. When the king shows up, does he fight by himself? There's always an entourage around him. The armor bearer is there. Other people are there. They're always kind of, he's battling, but they're, they're protecting him in some way. So the, for the king to be all by himself, just leaning on a spear on a hillside, is pretty hard for David to believe, I would think. And then when David says, and, and who are you? And he says, well, I'm just a foreigner. I'm an Amalekite. Well, David has been fighting the Amalekites while all this business was going on. So what is an Amalekite doing in a battle between Israel and the Philistines? He's there for his own good. What we find out, I think, about this Amalekite is that his motive is greed. That he's there for his own good. Whether going there or happening upon it by chance, He's going to take this situation and attempt to use it for his own good. Now, the fact that this man is an Amalekite is both telling and ironic. Because it's the Amalekites who attacked Israel as they were marching out of Egypt and coming to the promised land. So the Amalekites kind of sneak attacked on them. You, you might remember the story. Joshua, Moses tells Joshua, gather a bunch of men and go fight them, and I'll go on the mountain and hold my hands up. And it says in, in, in Exodus, as long as Moses' hands were up, the Israelites were winning, and whenever his hands would fall down, uh, the Israelites were losing. I don't know what it is about me, but I struggle to hold things above my head, like even light bulbs, you know, when you're trying to screw a light bulb in. So I cannot imagine the pressure on Moses' shoulders in this moment of battle. That every time his hands begin to slip. So it says, they give him a rock to sit on 
And two guys on either side hold his hands up. And ultimately, Joshua carries the day against the Amalekites who are trying to do what? Seize on an opportunity for their own gain by attacking a country who has just escaped slavery from Egypt. It is both ironic and telling that this man is an Amalekite. Remember I said in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel that Saul was, was ultimately rejected by God? Do you know what caused Saul to ultimately be rejected by God? Saul, God said to Saul, I want you to go and attack the Amalekites because they attacked the Israelites when they were coming up out of Egypt. And I, and I promised the people then that I would blot these Amalekites out. He said, I want you to go and I want you to attack them and I want you to wipe them out. And he says, I want you to, to, to wipe out everything that they had so they're blotted out. And so Saul goes and does this except for all the things he thinks he can use and are helpful to him. So all the sheep and the goats and all the other plunder and stuff, he takes for himself. And so the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, what have you done? And he says, I've done exactly what God told me. There's this incredible little verse there. And Samuel says, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And oh, by the way, Saul was delayed in coming to meet Samuel because what was he doing? It says he was off building a monument to honor himself. It's both telling and ironic that these Amalekites who were supposed to be wiped out now come and bring the crown of Saul who did not complete God's mission to David. And then lastly, it's both ironic and telling because David himself has just returned from finishing the job that Saul never did by taking care of the Amalekites. Because Saul had not taken care of them, they had come back in and plundered. They had carried off women and children. David's men were so upset with him that their women, their wives, their kids, their families were gone, that they were turning on him. And David prayed and said to God, if we attack, will you be with us? And God says, I, I will. And so he goes and, and no one is killed. And all of the glory of, of the town and the people are brought back. And David in his His obedience to God's command on his life sees this great victory and then here shows up an Amalekite. Don't you think it's both telling and ironic that this man happens to be an Amalekite? So why would he do this, right? Why on earth would the Amalekite take the crown and the armbands of Saul and bring it to David? Well, there's probably one of two things going on and perhaps a combination of both. The first being, he would like to endear himself to this king who has just been victorious over his people. And what better way to do it than bringing the crown of David's seemingly seeming enemy, right? Saul and David are, are at each other. So he's looking for self-preservation. But I would imagine, especially the way that he concocts this story, which is pretty grandiose that he tells, that he's after not just self-preservation, but self-advancement. Don't you think? Like, the king's going to owe me one for this. Maybe he's looking for a government job. We know what happens in political races, right? All the people who help you get elected get wonderful government jobs. Wonderful, I don't know if that's what you call them, but they get the government jobs. And so perhaps he's looking, or or in some way, to kind of for David to owe him something for when he's in the moment. And see, all of this is driven by the belief, the human sort of 
mano y mano belief that David would feel the same way as this Amalekite, that greed would win the day. And yet what's stunning is that David could not be anywhere near feeling this level of greed. And if we've read all of 1 Samuel, we would not be surprised at all by this story. Because there's been numerous times throughout the life of David that he has had opportunity to grab the crown from Saul. And he has always resisted it. Remember there's that one interesting story where David's hiding in a cave and Saul comes in to uh, use the facilities. And he's, he's squatting down to go to the bathroom in this cave and David's right there. And David could, could kill him if he wanted and could take the crown and it could be his. And David just cuts the corner of his garment off. And you, you might remember that David felt incredible amounts of guilt and grief even for doing that. See, for David, he understood that God had promised to him this kingship. And he believed so much in God's promise that he led him to understand that it would be God who would fulfill it. In other words, that Sometimes we kind of get in the, 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 the vein of God's made a promise, so I need to fulfill it for him, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? But for David, it's God's made a promise, and God will make good on his promise. And I'm not going to push God towards some expected fulfillment of this promise that I think should happen. Instead, I'm going to wait on God. Even, listen to this even if it means my reign might be shorter, and even if it means my current circumstances might remain treacherous. Think about it. If any of us were David, you might tell me a different answer, but I know you, right? And I know me. If any of us were David, we would have ended Saul at the first chance. David's life was miserable because of Saul. And yet Saul honored David or David honored Saul in such a way because David honored God that he would not insert himself. A fascinating comparison between the Amalekite and David in the area of greed. And so I pause and ask us as we consider our place in this story. What does greed look like in our lives? Are we quick to grab for power? Are we quick to take the circumstances of life, whatever they might be, and attempt to use them for our gain and our advantage? Listen, when I say that David would not push God's plan, that does not mean that we all need to find lazy boys and just sit around and wait for God to snap things into into fruition. But there's a difference between God fulfilling his promise and David going out and doing it for himself. I remember when I was finishing up seminary and I was looking for jobs, for a pastor job, and we weren't yet affiliated with the, with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and I was searching through jobs, and there was this one job, and, uh, and I don't know if the job would have been good or not, but it was a job, right? And I was working in a bank, and I was finishing up seminary, and my family of four was living with my parents. My parents were wonderful, and they made it so good for us, but we wanted our own space, so it was this job, and I was pushing so hard for this job. And, Rach, you were pushing hard for this job, too. And Jack and Ty were little, but they were probably pushing hard for this job. And, and we were pushing and pushing and trying to grease the skids as best we could. And ultimately, 
God shut the door, and it was incredibly painful for us. But the very next door that he opened was the Alliance wanting to plant a church in a town called Bethlehem because there was no presence here. And it was the 12th most unreached urban area in metro area in the entire United States. And God brought us here, and the fulfillment of God's call on our life into this place was that much greater because he did it and we didn't. Does it make sense? How in our lives are we trying to push instead of being faithful and trusting God to come through on His promise? Second G, I said, is is grief. Whereas, Whereas the Amalekite comes with intense greed, what we see in intensity from David is grief. And this should strike us because this is odd. This is not normal. Your greatest enemy in the whole world The person who has made your life miserable is dead. Is your first thought to weep like a baby? Or is your first thought to celebrate like a crazy person, right? And yet David weeps like a baby. See, for the Amalekite, there's no grief. He takes the posture of grief because he knows for the story to work, he has to put on a facade. And so he comes with his clothes torn and he comes with dirt on his head. But none of it is real. All of it is a facade. Because for the Amalekite, it's simply about what he can gain from this reality. It it reminds me, I remember after the the horrific um, terrorist attacks on 9-11, that there were some people who set up phony donation realities. They attempted to capitalize on this national disaster. And for me, that's pretty similar to what's going on here. A man trying to capitalize on what for Israel is a national tragedy. And he's looking to gain from it. But for David, the response is intense grief. And you really just see it in three layers, three deepening layers. At the beginning, there's a grief for Saul. And this is striking me. As I said, Saul has made his life miserable. And yet David's undoubted hatred for the actions of Saul, hatred for the decisions of Saul, hatred for the sin of Saul, is overcome by his love for the man named Saul. Do you hear that? That his hatred for Saul does not, his hatred for Saul's actions does not win the day over his love for Saul's soul. Friends, for us, this is a challenge, is it not? There are plenty of people, leaders or not leaders, in our world, in the church, in life, that we struggle with. And sometimes their decisions are out and out wrong. And all too often, our hatred for their choices overcomes our love for them as human beings. Not for David. And maybe in this moment, more than any other place, we see what God meant when he said he has a heart like mine. A compassion for people who even hate him. God is the only one we see who has this consistent heart for people who reject him, who 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 spit on him, who turn against him, who are enemies to him. It's the story of the gospel that we celebrate together and what God has done in our life. Paul says, while we were yet 
sinners. And elsewhere, Paul says, when we were his enemies, God showed his love to us. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17, Solomon, David's son, no doubt learning from his father, said, never rejoice when your enemy falls. That's a jagged pill to swallow, isn't it? But see, Saul's grief, or David's grief for Saul, is even overcome by his grief for Israel. He grieves for Saul, that Saul has been misled in this way, that Saul has made the choices he's made, and that his life has ended in the way it's ended. But even more than that, he grieves for Israel, for this incredible national tragedy, for, for thousands of Israelites who have died, for a nation whose king has been defeated, a massive loss. He says, I'm praying that the news doesn't get out to the neighboring countries, that the name of Israel would be tarnished in this way. His grief for the people, oh, by the way, many of whom were on Saul's side, not his. And then ultimately we get to the core of where the grief really comes for from David. And that's that his grief is for the name of God, for the glory and the renown of God. We see that if you read later in his incredible poem of grief. And the main reason he doesn't want the news getting out is so that other nations won't mock the name of God. He understands that this this situational and and momentary loss of the people of God is going to give the world opportunity to spit on the name of God. Where was your God? He didn't come through for you. How can God be the God of a church where priests abuse little boys, right? How can God be the church, a God of a church where pastors are misogynist and where pastors are mistreating women. How can God be the God of a church? You understand when there's a loss in the midst of the people of God, it's the name of God that takes the ultimate tarnishing blow. And for David, he says, my heart is grief stricken. What about us? How do we respond? How do we respond when there's failure in the church? Are we angry? (laughs) Are we prideful? Well, I would never do that. Is our heart overwhelmed with grief? Even in such a way that we would write a poem to be published in a book that would be read over and over and over again. Do we grieve for our leaders even in their wrong choices? Do we grieve for the people of God? Do we grieve for the people of this world who are misled? Do we grieve for our own failures? And ultimately, do we grieve for the glory and the renown of God? We talk a lot here about union with Christ. That the, 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 the greatest reality of the gospel is that we've been joined to Jesus. And that every promise God has made throughout scriptures is ours because it is Jesus's. And so long as we are joined to him, then it's ours. But the other side of being joined to Jesus is that in every single failure, we've brought Jesus into that. Do you see it? That in every victory Jesus has brought us into, we bring him into our failures. Do do you mourn for the renown of the name of God. And it brings us really to the third G, the G that uh, is glory. 
Because at the core of it, the choice for grief or for greed in a situation like this really is rooted in who we're seeking to give glory to in our lives. Is it us or is it God? Someone once said that you can know all you need to know about the heart of a man by seeing what he celebrates and what he mourns. Think about that. Because you know what glory he's seeking. For the Amalekite, it's no secret. He's seeking his own glory. He's concocted a story where who is the hero? It's him. He's done everything he needs to do. You know what's telling about the Amalekite story? That he took the the crown and the armbands but left the body. If he understood the national tragedy, he would have put the body on his horse or his mule or his shoulder and brought the whole body of Saul back. But instead, it was the Philistines who collected the king's body, who beheaded it, who hung it up in their village, and who made a mockery of it. This was never about the glory of God. It was never about even the glory of Israel. It was about the Amalekite as the hero and what he could gain from it. But for David, the whole thing is about the glory of God. Whereas the Amalekite takes a posture of a hero, David takes the posture of a mourner. Here's the man who now is king because the king is dead. And rather than grabbing the crown that is there for the taking more so than ever, he tears his clothes and he weeps like a baby. What about us? In your life, in the way that you have structured your life, in the rhythm of your life, who gets the glory? I hope that you are so much better than me because way too often in my life, I have organized my life so that I get the glory. So that I am seen as significant or accepted or secure. Instead of declaring that my significance and acceptance and security is found in the glory of God. For me, I'm far too often the Amalekite. How about you? You know, David's life is fascinating, isn't it? He, he's a humble shepherd living in a town called Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, uh, Samuel shows up and unseen, it's a ceremony, but it's no big ceremony, kind of unceremoniously anoints him king, even though there seems to be other people in power at the time. And, and so he arrives on the scene as this king, and he wins some incredible victories. He slays a giant and leads to some other incredible victories for Israel. And yet the very people who he's been anointed for and sent to to lead and to, and to protect, they reject him. And he becomes the enemy of Israel. And he's on the run and he's being persecuted. He's betrayed. He's even wrongly convicted. And there are numerous attempts on his life. And yet, for David... There's no greed. There's no pushing forward the timeline of God, but humbly waiting for the moment when God comes through on his promises so that God will get the glory and not him. 
And in the meantime, he grieves the reality of a people who have misunderstood. It sounds an awful lot like another king we know, doesn't it? A king who would call himself a great shepherd. A king who was born in Bethlehem. Born and called the king of the Jews, but pretty unceremoniously in a manger, like we just celebrated in Advent. Who would come on the scene and win some pretty incredible battles. Calming storms, casting out demons, healing the sick, multiplying bread, turning water into wine. And yet the very people who he'd been sent to save and to lead turn their back on him. And they reject him. And he's cast out and on the run. So much so that he would say of himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was betrayed. And he was wrongly convicted. And whereas David faced constant threat of death, Jesus hung on a cross and took on the very nature of death. And isn't it fascinating that in the midst of this great kingly arrival, Jesus refuses to grab at the crown. He refuses to attempt to push the timeline forward for God. He even gets into a fight with his mom about it. Even when the devil tempts him, he resists it. And even when his own flesh wants it, he submits to the will of God in the garden. So that at the right time, Paul writes to the Philippians, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And throughout his arrival on earth, what is constantly going on in the life of Jesus? He's constantly mourning the reality of humanity. Remember the famous time when Jesus comes and overlooks the town of Jerusalem and says he weeps for the city because they don't understand, they don't get it. And even as he hangs on the cross, friends, what does Jesus say to the Father about those who are persecuting him? Father, forgive them. They don't get it. Mourns for the people, for the name of God that is being tarnished in his own crucifixion. Because for Jesus, it is about God's glory. Famously saying in his prayer, your will be done, not mine. And submitting himself to it. See, this first chapter of 2 Samuel is set up to show us that the king that Saul wasn't, this David guy, he's someone you Israelites should follow. He gets it. But there's a bigger picture going on. Because when Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic throne, the point is to us who are reading the stories 
and watching the drama and hearing the sermons that this is the guy. He's the king. He's worthy to be followed. He understands. He is everything that we can never be. And so maybe the big question for us this morning is simple as this. Who gets to be king? Maybe that's the simple way to sum up this whole chapter. Who gets to be king? Saul had an answer, didn't he? Me. I get to be king. God made me king. It's, it's my kingdom. I'm going to hold on to it, even though I've had many missteps. And here's David, who's been anointed king. But I'm going to fight him tooth and nail. And I'll extinguish him so I can hold on to my kingdom at any cost. What about the kingdom of your life? You, you're a little bit like Saul sometimes? I am. It's mine, thank you very much. I'm in charge. Who gets to be king? The Amalekite has an answer. David gets to be king, but he owes me because I helped him. Sometimes we take that posture with our own lives too, don't we? Well, Jesus gets to be king, but like, look, look at all I've done for him. So he, he kind of owes me. Jesus is in my debt. Like that sounds weird to say out loud, but a lot of us, Maybe you're different than me. But a lot of times that's how I feel. Like, I'm really good at going to church. I read my Bible. I try to do all these good things. Like, Jesus, you owe me on coming through for some things that I really need. Malachi wants a government job. You know, I don't need a government job, but there's some other things I'd like God to like, come through for me on. You know what I'm saying? Who gets to be king? And then there's this other guy in the story. You hear about him uh, a little bit in, in announcing his death. And, and you hear... David really mourned this guy named Jonathan. Jonathan's the guy who gets it right. Ask Jonathan the question, who gets to be king? And he says, David. No questions asked. And the rest of the kingdom is probably looking at him and saying, you're nuts. You're the rightful heir to this throne. Jonathan says, no. This is the guy. David says of him in his poem of mourning that the love of Jonathan for him was greater than the love of a woman. He's talking about this, this agape love, this sacrificing love that Jesus would later say, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for their friend. Jonathan has laid down his life so that David can ascend to the throne. I think the author is begging us to come to the same conclusion as Jonathan. Who gets control? You? You so that you can kind of twist the strings for God? Or does Jesus get control because he's the rightful king? Friends, here's what I know. The only way you come to the third conclusion is if you have a depth of love for Jesus that surpasses the love of a woman, in David's words. If you've come to truly know who Jesus is and what he's done in light of who you are and what you've done, it is the only way. 
There is no religious equation where just this morning you say, well, Adam said I, Jesus should be king, so today I make Jesus king. That doesn't work. It comes with soaking deeply in the narrative of God's love. See, because God is incredibly patient. His loving kindness extends to the ends of the ages. Patient so that every single one of us would turn and make him king. Can I pray with you?